On April 12, Fort Sumner in Charleston Harbor was bombarded by our Southern brothers, who thought the election of Abraham Lincoln meant the taking away from them the rights and liberties their forefathers had left them. Therefore, they wished to withdraw from the Union and govern themselves. The North would not allow anything of the kind. Hence the Civil War, where 400,000 of our Northern citizens laid down their lives that the Union might be preserved. Welcome to Matizzi Stories, a podcast by the Matizzi Museums that explores Matizzi area history through its people, places, and events. This season, we're examining national and international conflicts through the lives of local veterans. This episode focuses on the Civil War and the lives of Matizzi men who fought in the bloodiest conflict of America's history. Kathleen Holzer has been researching Matizzi veterans and getting many of them military headstones. Well, it started as a thing for the Legion when they started having the memorials up at the uh, cemetery. And uh, I was kind of selected since at that time I was doing ancestry for family. Uh, And it kind of ballooned into something I can't find an end to. (laughs) It's running away with me. Uh, it is fascinating, and I had no idea that we had so much uh, military history here in Matizzi. We have a whole mess of it, We've, uh, and, and uh, nobody talked about it. After sitting down with Kathleen and talking about each Civil War veteran, I had some questions. To answer these, I spoke to John Lustria, Education Coordinator at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine in Frederick, Maryland, and Dr. Kurt Hackmer, professor of history at the University of South Dakota. These conversations helped me to better understand the lives of the Matizzi veterans, as well as my conversation with Kathleen. Uh, So my name is John Lustria. I'm the education coordinator at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. Uh, We're located over in uh, Frederick, Maryland. Uh, I've been with the museum uh, coming up on three years now. And uh, we, as our name suggests, We uh, interpret the history of Civil War medicine. Um, It's a surprisingly inspiring story, given what uh, the kind of horrific images it tends to call to mind for most people. Um, But we kind of tell that story in the ways that Civil War medicine uh, impacts the the world today. I asked John to tell me about medicine during the Civil War. Yeah, so uh, things start off pretty bleak. Um, at, at the beginning of the conflict, uh, and a lot of that stems from the fact that the, the military medical department was just unprepared for the size and scale of the conflict. Um, so at the, the beginning of the Civil War, there's, for example, no such thing as the ambulance corps. There's no dedicated group of people um, whose job it is to go out on the battlefield and, and get people um, the the department is is unorganized. It's too small. Um, the majority of the the surgeons serving um, probably have never performed an amputation before, even though that's going to become the most common surgical procedure. Um, so they're just not ready um, for the the scale of the conflict. And to add uh, on top of that. Uh, germ theory has not been discovered yet. We're probably about 10 years away from the discovery of germ theory. So of all deaths in the Civil War, two-thirds will result from disease 
and only one-third as a result of battlefield injury. So that lack of knowledge is pivotal. Um, but over the course of the war, uh, medical care does actually improve uh, in spite of all that. And just to further underscore one more time how unprepared uh, the medical department was, the first major battle of the Civil War, the Battle of First Bull Run, uh, wounded soldiers, um, there's about you know, four or 5,000 casualties and wounded soldiers. Some of them are left on the field for five to seven days waiting for medical care. So it's, it's essentially a, a disaster. And so it becomes clear that something needs to happen. Uh, and a variety of things kind of all occur right around the same time in 1862, uh, kind of after the war has been going on for a little while. Um, the sitting Surgeon General retires. Uh, and Abraham Lincoln um, basically solicits opinions uh, from the U.S. Sanitary Commission, uh, a non-governmental organization who's providing voluntary relief effort. And they suggest that this person named William Hammond um, should be made Surgeon General. And Hammond was a real young guy. Uh, he's in his 30s. Um, he's very interested in innovation, making great changes because clearly things are not working. And uh, one of the things that he changes is he appoints someone by the name of Jonathan Letterman, uh, Dr. Jonathan Letterman, over the medical department in the Army of the Potomac, the Union Army in the Eastern Theater. And long story short, uh, he creates something called the Ambulance Corps, uh, and it debuts at the Battle of Antietam. It's the bloodiest single day in American history, and within 48 hours of the end of the battle, uh, all uh, 14,000 wounded soldiers are off the field and into a hospital. So it's a, a remarkable improvement. And, and even beyond that, Letterman puts into place this uh, system of care, which formally implements things like triage uh, and, you know, streamlining the system of wounded soldiers, which formalizes care for them all the way from the moment they're injured all the way through long-term recovery. So it's the first time a medical system like this had ever been put in place in American history. The progress made in medical care during the Civil War soon found its way abroad. Um, during the Civil War, there are a number of uh, foreign observers, both you know, military as well as medical. And they see the Letterman plan get put into place and um, it, it bears results, very positive and life-saving results almost immediately. And they say to themselves, wow, that's a good idea. And so they implement it and, you know, they go back to their respective countries, France and Prussia and others, and they, they implement what they call the American plan. Um, now, after the Civil War ends, um, there is not a conflict on the size of the Civil War, um, really until World War One, at least that Americans are involved in. And the Letterman system kind of gets unlearned, if you can believe it. Um, it's not practiced, it's not upkept, um, and so it, it kind of falls out of favor. And so when the Americans enter World War I, um, weirdly enough, the Letterman system gets taught back to the Americans by uh, the French, and they call it the American plan. And they're like, you guys aren't doing this? We learned this from you. And it's this kind of newfound revelation in the 19-teens. The um, so it, it had a big enough impact uh, in other countries' healthcare systems that it then had its own impact again in the United States.
Remember that battle John mentioned where bodies lay on the battlefield for up to five days after the conflict? Two Matizzi veterans, Joseph Dexter Bennett and Emmanuel Faust, were likely both present at that battle, the Battle of Bull Run. Uh, well, so at the, the first Battle of Bull Run, um, I actually just uh, went there not terribly long ago. Um, and, and the thing that struck me is um, basically how, and this isn't entirely true, but um, mm. more or less, I mean, how, how little they knew what they were doing. Um, n not only from the medical perspective, but, you know, the, the armies are kind of bumbling around, stumbling around each other. Um, and, you know, the, the battle looks really, it, it it doesn't in some ways resemble a civil war battle. Um, the organ, it's very disorganized. Um, commanders are giving contradictory orders. Um, no one, the, the uniforms had not quite been standardized at that time. And so sometimes there are numerous cases of people not sure which side a certain unit is on and holding their fire when they shouldn't and firing when they shouldn't. So it's, it's really kind of a, um, confusing is is the number one word that I would describe Bull Run um, as, and and that confusion unfortunately leads to uh, a lot of um, probably unnecessary um, death and wounds. Uh, and so, if you were injured at the the first battle, Bull Run, um, it, you know you if you were able to walk, you probably wouldn't know where to go other than not the way you were just going when you got shot. Um, the the experience of, of first bull run would have been um, chaotic in a different way that most civil war battles would be because of course every civil war battle in any battle or war zone of course is going to be chaotic but um, in, in most situations after bull run you at least get the sense that kind of somebody knows what's going on but um, bull run was about as disorganized as it was possible for organized warfare to be. <laughs> Despite 32,230 total estimated casualties at the Battle of Bull Run, both Bennett and Faust survived and made the unlikely choice to continue their service. And, and you know, at that time, you could you could uh, volunteer for a year, and, and then you were out mm -hmm. uh, to stay the whole five years was amazing, and, and surprisingly, a lot of them did. Why, why do you think that was? I think they just really wanted it to be resolved. Faust wasn't the only man who made the choice to stay longer than his required service. For whatever their reasons, J.D. Bennett, Nelson Phillips, William Pickett, Harry Session, Thomas McDonough, George Washington Pence, Riley Standish, and John Clark all served for at least three years during the Civil War. It's possible that more of the Matizzi veterans served for three years or more. But unfortunately, many of the records of the Civil War are not readily available or they've been lost to time. Peter Perrin lived in Matitsi and was a member of the Old Timers Club. He was a Civil War veteran who had served under the name Thomas Fogarty. He's the only Navy, Navy person. Yeah, he's the only Navy person. Mm -hmm. And he said that he was on the USS... And I can't say the name of that ship either. The oh, Monotoc. Monotoc, yeah. 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 Okay. That held John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. yeah. And and this, I think five, or maybe it was five including Booth, I can't remember, um, people that 
were involved in planning that um, assassination of Lincoln. Lincoln but yeah. that's a really interesting place to be <laughs> in this time. We get glimpses of Peter's life during the war and after, but there's really very little that we know about him. He was born at sea in the 1840s and died in South Dakota. We don't know where the ship he was born on had come from, but can guess that it was headed to the United States. We don't know why he chose to serve under an alias or how he chose that alias's name. We don't even know how long he served in the Union, or even what regiment he served for. After the war, Peter drew a pension of $40. That's the equivalent of $591.26 today. We don't know how he was injured or what those injuries were. Thankfully, Peter's one of the more mysterious cases. Joseph Dexter Bennett also sustained injuries during his service, but unlike Peter, we know quite a bit about him. As he got older, he was in and out of the Fort Dodge um, hospital. Yeah. One, at one point, I think I saw that he he excused himself or discharged himself. Yeah. Um, but he was suffering from results of, of the war. Mm-hmm. So well, was, I mean, you know, mental and then had, well, he had a gunshot gun in yeah. his left arm, mm-hmm. right hand, and ankle. Mm-hmm. You can only imagine, as, you know, as you get older and arthritis, that's in. And, well, and, and an ankle is particularly bad because, you know, that's what has to support you. Even though Bennett lived with injuries, he had escaped a fate many of his comrades fell prey to. Disease took more lives during the Civil War than actual deaths in battle. Um, well, the most common, and it's sort of a nomer calling it a, a disease, but the most common by far was diarrhea and dysentery. Um, there are well over a million cases, uh, both sides combined, uh, of this. Um, and it, ultimately, those million cases lead to uh, somewhere around 50,000 combined deaths um, uh, from both sides. Um, now, that's not just, you know, you eat something bad and then you die um, as a result of, you know, diarrhea. Um, what that is more so is sort of an advanced stage of malnutrition. Um, so, and, and soldiers at the front do eat fruits and vegetables throughout the conflict, but it's a lack of a regular feature of fresh produce in their diet that kind of leads to this. So a, a soldier's diet is primarily beans, some type of salted meat, um, coffee, uh, hardtack, which is six parts flour, one part water. You can make it at home. I don't recommend it. It's not very good. Um, but there's no regular way to get fresh produce, and that um, leads to all kinds of intestinal and nutritional deficiencies. Um, but but beyond beyond diarrhea and dysentery, you know you have things like typhoid fever um, are incredibly common. Other waterborne illnesses. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, um, typhoid comes to mind. You know, of course, gangrene was a thing, uh, not as prevalent as as most people think, but uh, it was probably the most contagious disease of the Civil War. So it, it's basically um, the, it's, it's a type of infectious disease, uh, and it is the uh, decay of cells, um, so the, you know, the building blocks that make up you know, everything, um, the decay of living cells, I should say. And so the, it was most common uh, in 
you know, amputation stumps or open wounds of some sort, something like that. And so um, it would kind of take on this pretty gruesome discoloration, um, which is basically the living cells that are there slowly dying. Uh, and it, it spread incredibly rapidly. Um, and there are, you know, instances, reports of, of gangrene kind of moving up a person's limb at the, the rate of, you know, inches per hour. Um, so this, it spread quite quickly. Uh, and the mortality rate was astonishingly high. Uh, it was somewhere around 50%. Um, so if you, uh, got gangrene, um, it's basically a coin flip whether they end up living or dying. Um, but as an example of innovation in Civil War medicine, um, doctor, I think the, the doctor's name is Middleton Goldstein or something like that, uh, out of Missouri. Um, so of course, Civil War surgeons are aware that this is a problem. And so they're trying to figure out creative ways to treat it. Um, and he eventually comes up with the idea of just kind of dumping a bunch of, uh, bromine solution on the open wound. Um, it's, it, it's not exactly this, but it, it functions, you know, it's, it's, uh, functions similar to something like hydrogen peroxide. So it's incredibly painful. Um, but it, it kills a lot of the germs there. Um, again, they don't know that's what's happening. Um, but they, they dump the, the bromine on the, on the wound. And, um, when that was implemented, the mortality rate went from 50% down to about 4%. So it was incredibly effective. Um, they discover it pretty late in the war, but, you know, uh, innovation uh, comes as a result uh, of the Civil War. When the war ended, an estimated 620,000 soldiers had lost their lives. Some scholars even estimate the death toll to be as high as 750,000. Remaining soldiers were left to re-enter civilian lives. Uh, my name is Kurt Hackamer. I'm a professor of history at the University of South Dakota in Vermilion, South Dakota. And um, I do a fair amount of research on Civil War veterans who migrated to the frontier. We know a fair amount about what happened to Civil War soldiers who went home after the war. Um, and we're talking primarily east of the Mississippi River because there are pretty good records about that. And what we know is that um, many of them had a difficult time reintegrating back into their home communities. Um, and that expresses itself in all kinds of ways. There's there's uh, uh, certainly um, a lot of discussion about uh, increased use of alcohol, increased use of other drugs, um, soldiers or veterans acting out. Um, what we haven't known as historians uh, is uh, what happened to those who went west, uh, primarily because of the lack of records. And... Um, most of these men, when they when they went to the frontier, didn't leave much behind. Um, so you don't find memoirs about um, uh, what my Civil War experience was was like and why I had to leave my home community uh, or anything like that. So where we get really lucky here is uh, in 1885, the federal government offered to pay half the cost of um, a special census uh, and offered that opportunity to the different states and territories. And six or seven states or territories took them up on that. Uh, so it's an off-year census. And Dakota Territory 
uh, in setting up its census decided that it would uh, then create a special schedule that was devoted to cataloging who uh, Civil War veterans and, and trying to find out some information about them. And the territorial legislature was really interesting in the in their guidance. Um, they said they wanted to do this to preserve the memory of these Civil War veterans for posterity. And so what we have for the southern half of Dakota Territory, what is now modern South Dakota, uh, is a special census that records information about 5,885 veterans who lived in the territory. So these veterans who were not likely to leave behind their own records, um, uh, this special census captured enough information about them that uh, we could start digging into uh, their life and experiences a bit using statistics rather than the, than the written word. So a couple of interesting things that I found in doing this. Um, what I, what I honed in on was the prevalence of combat trauma among these veterans. If you dig into, uh, the records of Civil War veterans in general, there were some 19th century statisticians that did some work on this. And, um, one of them, um, identified uh, a guy named Fox, um, went through all of the Union Army uh, regimental records and tracked uh, what happened to every regiment in terms of casualties and came up with a list of what he called the 300 fighting regiments that, that bore the brunt of the heaviest fighting in the Civil War. And those 300 fighting regiments made up about 8.5% of the Union Army. If you take a look at the veterans who came to Dakota Territory from that census list, um, about 21.5% of them were in the 300 fighting regiments. So they are dramatically overrepresented. Uh, there's a there's a lot more veterans of these uh, uh, these high intensity combat experiences that come out to Dakota Territory. I also took a look at uh, the census asked veterans if they were wounded or not, and when I looked at the entire pool of veterans who came uh, to Dakota Territory, they were wounded at a rate about twice as high as the Union Army veteran population in general. And then those uh, veterans who had served in the 300 fighting regiments were wounded at a rate twice as high as the rest of the veterans who came to Dakota Territory. Uh, so um, even those veterans who were not necessarily in uh, these high-intensity combat regiments um, were still wounded at an alarming rate. Uh, which was, uh, again, very different than the Union population in general. During his research, Dr. Hackamer found an interesting phenomena. So when veterans came out, um, my initial research showed that, you know, they tended to go in these relatively isolated groups, those had, that had been exposed to heavy combat trauma, um, and that that represented 20.5% uh, of, the, of the, the veterans in Dakota Territory. And then I encountered the phenomenon of soldier colonies, of veteran colonies. 
And um, I first ran into them uh, in South Dakota. Uh, there were uh, uh, in the towns of Gettysburg, which still exists today, and another town called Loyalton, which no longer exists. Um, and I found when I dug deeper that there were colonies, veteran colonies that were set up in Minnesota, South Dakota, Kansas, and Nebraska. And what these colonies were, were groups of veterans who generally organized um, out east. And they came together and founded entire towns that were just veteran-centric. There's about 10 of these um, that existed across the northern plains. So they would form basically a mutual aid society um, and then work with railroads to get group transportation rates um, would uh, railroads owned a lot of land would work with railroads to to get reduced prices on land um, and would come out uh, in these in the and form these towns where the majority of the people living in them were Civil War veterans. Um, and as I looked into these little communities uh, across multiple states, um, I wanted to check and see if the uh, uh, how important combat trauma, exposure to combat trauma was, uh, as it had been with, with the uh, veteran census that I looked at in Dakota Territory. And when I dug deeper into um, all 10 of these uh, veteran colonies, so remember that the um, exposure to, to high-intensity combat was 8.5% for the Union Army as a whole, was 21.5% for veterans who went to Dakota Territory, when I looked at these 10 soldier colonies across the Northern Plains, um, the uh, percentage of veterans who had been exposed to that high-intensity combat uh, was over 30% in every case. So you have another instance of um, veterans finding common cause with each other, um, coming together in groups to process their wartime experiences, and this actually fits in really well with the modern literature of um, how uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome is most effectively processed by veterans of modern wars. I want to be careful um, not saying that these, these Civil War veterans had PTSD because the, the medical records simply aren't good enough to, to make that kind of a claim. Um, but I think it is fascinating that, that we can find uh, veterans who we know were exposed to high-intensity combat clustering together, um, either individually in these counties scattered across Dakota Territory or collectively in these communities. The few accounts that I found uh, are generally not written by veterans but are written by uh, the children of veterans. And um, you find those uh, those children talking about um, the fact that their fathers would get together with other veterans but didn't really want to talk about the war with their kids. One of the Matizzi soldiers who remained quiet about his involvement in the Civil War was Gilbert Avery. What was one of your most intriguing finds about Avery? That he uh, deserted. <laughs> and, you know, there's nothing in any of the early Matizzi news, there's no mention at all of him being in the military at all. Uh, so this was something he obviously didn't want anybody to know about either. 
but uh, I, the, he did desert. He had an, another brother who served uh, four years or five years, whatever, and, and uh, got out with an honorable discharge, but uh, <laughs> Gilbert did not. And uh, to me, uh, some people might consider that shameful, but to me it makes him human. I have to assume that he was in a battle that was particularly bad and perhaps figured he'd had enough of war. And I certainly can't identify with that. I think I would have felt the same, but I haven't been able to find out what time, you know, what battle would have been around the time that he took off. Uh, It would be interesting to to be able to find that out. Mm -hmm. And he was in a heavy artillery regiment, wasn't Mm -hmm. he? Yeah. Um, Is there anything about those regiments that they would have seen... I would imagine, yeah, because, you know, they're in the beginning and they're blowing the heck out of everything trying to, to uh, get it so that the, their soldiers, foot soldiers, can go in uh, without getting slaughtered completely. But mm-hmm. uh, it didn't always work, and they got slaughtered anyway. And, yeah, I can't imagine the carnage. We'll never know why Gilbert Avery deserted or the exact reason he came to live in Matizzi. We can surmise some Matizzi soldiers ended up out west after their service in the Indian Wars. Others sought anonymity. And there's a good chance some came for opportunities in land. So in 1862, uh, Congress passed the Homestead Act. And under the provisions of the Homestead Act, settlers could come west. Um, They could lay claim to 160 acres of public land. Um, They would then um, prove the land. They would, they would uh, put a, a house up. They would begin farming it. And if they stayed in that land for five years, then they gained title to it. In the 1870s, Congress modified the Homestead Act for veterans. And what they did was they allowed uh, every year of military service during the Civil War to count uh, towards the five-year period. So a veteran who enlisted in uh, 1860 or 1861 and served a three-year enlistment or re-enlisted and served four years uh, would have that, that number of years of military service taken off of their homestead requirements. So they could prove up a homestead in some cases in a year or two rather than five years. Dr. Hackmer has a theory about why veterans were so successful homesteading. When you look at the literature of homesteading in general, most homesteads failed, or those that did fail, most of them failed because the homesteaders didn't have any kind of financial security. They were entirely dependent on their efforts on the homestead to, for their livelihood. What's different about these veterans is that they have a consistent source of income from from the federal government as they are homesteading. And my hypothesis there is that that made them more likely to to succeed at homesteading um, than most uh, civilian homesteaders in general. I asked John Lestria how the pension system worked. Um, and so the purpose of these pensions um, are if you're if you sustained injuries during wartime that prevent you from kind of going back to your regular life, because these are volunteer soldiers. Um, these are not people who are kind of career military. Um, they 
you know, volunteered to go off and fight uh, in the Civil War. They left their job as a farmer or, or a clerk or, or whatever. Uh, and so when they return home and they're, say, missing an arm, if you're missing your right arm, it's very hard to be a clerk if you can no longer write. Um, and it's very hard to be a farmer if you're missing one or two legs. And so the purpose of the Pension Bureau was to kind of provide a, a regular source of income for those people um, because, you know, they had given – uh, they had given their country something, so their country ought to kind of return the favor. That was the, the thinking. Uh, and so the Pension Bureau existed before the Civil War, uh, but it was so small because you know, the, the largest um, you know, army in uh, American history at that point uh, was only in the kind of 20,000s, 20, 30,000s of people. Um, but the Civil War, um, the total number that served in the Union Army was well over a million. Um, so the, the numbers just exploded. Um, so the, the, there, there was a need like there hadn't been before, and so the Pension Bureau dramatically expanded to meet that need. William Douglas Pickett, Laban Robert Hilberry, Henry Renner, Harry Session, and Peter Perrin all owned land in and around Matizzi and they likely used their veteran status and pensions to own land faster. But not all Matizzi veterans owned land. Nelson Ira Phillips was likely brought to Wyoming through his continued service during the Indian Wars. Phillips, a man with a mustache that Sam Elliott and Tom Selleck would envy, was not a landowner. He worked on different ranches in the area, including the Witt Ranch, where he shot a grizzly bear whose hide was hung in the Irma Hotel in Cody for many years. While Phillips fought for the Union and would have been able to stake a claim, he never did. It's possible not all veterans were able to make homestead claims and own land. In 1910, Daniel Leander Morris was a widow living with the Tewksbury's in Kerwin. He hoped to make his fortune in hard rock mining. It may be that even had Morse wished to put down roots, he would have been unable. Morse was born in Mississippi in 1846. He fought with the Texas Infantry during the Civil War, making him one of comparatively few Confederate soldiers in Matitsi, potentially rendering him unable to file a homestead claim. And, and I don't know who was telling me, as a rebel, he could not qualify for homestead. Uh, I was told that Henry Renner, who also was a Confederate, uh, his wife had to file. If there were clear divisions between Union and Confederate soldiers beyond the homestead claim process, they remain hidden. From the short-statured Peter Perrin to the beloved outdoorsman Nelson Phillips, these veterans all crafted lives on the frontier. Some were highly educated, like the veterinarian J.D. Bennett and the civil engineer William Pickett. Others worked on ranches, raised horses, or farmed. Some of the men have left lasting marks on Matizzi. Pickett Creek, west of town, is named after William Pickett, the Confederate civil engineer from a wealthy Texas family. Other veterans are largely a mystery. Their names are known, but little more. Joseph McDonough and John W. Clark both served during the Civil War, and at one point lived in Matizzi. We know little more. When I first had a beauty shop here in the early 70s, a lot of these people's children I did their hair, or, you know, I cut men's hair, too. If I had just been involved in this then, I could have gotten first-hand or second-hand, and, and it, it gripes me that, because, you know, every time we lose an old person, it's like burning a book. 
mm-hmm. all of that experience that they picked up throughout their lives and, and stuff is lost. And it's, you know, it's kind of sad. Thanks for listening to Matizzi Stories. For more information on each of the Civil War veterans, visit our website, matizimuseums.org. Complete interviews with Kathleen Holzer, John Lustria, and Dr. Hackmer are housed in the Matizzi Museum archives. To end this episode, we'll listen to an excerpt of J.D. Bennett's Memorial Day Address, given in 1905, and read by Bill Wiltsey. From the earliest pages of history, from the dawn of civilization to the present day, we see both banks of the stream of time strewn with the wreck of cities, nations, and empires, the remnants of Egypt and Carthage, the ruins of Athens, the crumbling stones of the once mighty Rome, are now but warnings of their folly. They are but wrecks on the sea of progress to warn succeeding ages from the rocks. Let us so live that no nation in the future can point to us as we now refer to those. May we be wisely warned by the errors of the ancients and prove ourselves worthy descendants of honored sires. There are in this audience some of the men who helped preserve this union. I never met one without having a patriotic impulse of kindness. Many of my friends, as well as myself, responded to Lincoln's first call and did our duty until the close of the war. The most of the boys who went with me has slept for many years in a soldier's grave with nothing to mark the spot. They may not be fully appreciated by this generation but they will hereafter rank with our revolutionary forefathers. When the last noble soldier of the G.A.R. shall be called to meet his comrades gone before, when he shall obey this last call and be summoned to a final camping ground in the silent city beyond, may he in peace and happiness see that they have not suffered in vain And when we gather around his pillow to soothe his final moments, may the grandeur of Columbia cause joy to conquer the pain of desolation.